Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. This is Pam Shriver. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. So, folks, there are two days remaining of the Australian Open, and we now know our final lineups because, along with the women's singles final tomorrow night of Ash Barty against Danielle Collins, we also now have a men's singles final to look forward to of Rafael Nadal against Daniil Medvedev, a repeat of the 2019 US Open final that I think it's fair to say we all quite enjoyed. Uh, today's two semifinals weren't quite the thrillers and epics that David Law promised you yesterday, but they, they were good. They were good, David. I don't think you're going to be asked for refunds, but there might be the odd grumble here and there. Yeah. I did, yeah, I mean, I, I thought Berrettini would make more of a fight of the first match early on. I didn't expect him to to come up against a Nadal quite like that. And I didn't expect Berrettini to just look so ordinary for the first two sets. Um, so I expected a five-setter there. And I and I was surprised that Sitsabas faded uh, the way he did. But actually, I also think that Medvedev forced him to fade because he was absolutely incredible at the end. But there were two really good semifinals that I enjoyed immensely. And they do set up the most wonderful prospects for a final because I do have very happy memories of that 2019 US Open final. Um, I remember you and I uh, after that having a having a what was what, what's that thing the honey juice uh, while a, we a recorded grey goose honey juice. Oh, I mean that was that's a memory I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back to if we go there again. But uh, you know that that was an incredibly <laughs> draining but exhilarating final, and I have really you know the only downer of that particular podcast was that Matt wasn't with us but I do remember it very fondly so if we get anything like that uh, on Sunday I think we're in for a treat and I, I think that that is definitely possible. Yeah and look we will talk about that final and everything that is on the line because we are aware that there's quite a lot on the line in that final we know that there's there's a big old men's grand slam race going on and uh we love to talk about that. Everyone in tennis loves to talk about that. But let's deal with the semi-finals from today first. Let's start with Nadal's victory over Matteo Berrettini. 
623663. I mean, the first words I've written in here in the agenda are Nadal is incredible. Um, I, I'm I'm going to struggle for words, I think, a little bit for, for Nadal's achievement this fortnight. And for for most of this semi-final, look, he, he did fade physically and that is going to be a feature, I think, of how we all preview the final. I think that's a worry. His foot pain grows as a match goes on. That seems to be pretty evident. But the tennis he played for two sets was utterly sublime. It was just heyday Rafael Nadal tennis. And full disclosure, this is not a this is not a prediction that I need to offer after the fact. But when that match was when it was decided that that match was to be played under the roof and there was no choice in that department because today has been a day of weather, folks. I got sort of detained. Oh, we shouldn't use that word. <laughs> this Australian <laughs> Open. I, I ended should, up in sort of lo- lockdown. Quite, quite Can't really use that word these oh, days God. either. I ended up um, so, <laughs> a hostage to this storm. <laughs> Um, that came into Melbourne today and I I couldn't leave the house. It was that serious. Um, The trams are all haywire. I couldn't get an Uber. I tried to get some food delivered and it kept on getting cancelled because the roads weren't safe. Um, When I finally managed to get out to get into the tennis midway through the second semi-final, it felt like escape from Alcatraz. It really did. It was a it was a really, really epic moment. But anyway, I watched the first semi final with the storm swirling around me, getting increasingly worried about the materials that our Airbnb is built th- built from because it really sounded like we were about to spring a leak any minute. But um, yeah, the roof was closed at the start of the match, and it it seemed likely all along that it would remain closed. And I feared. For Rafael Nadal, when when I heard that, quite frankly, Matt. Yeah, I wasn't sure what to make of it, just because. Yes, Nadal said himself, "I'm more of an outdoors guy," didn't he? In his in his interview with with Jim Courier afterwards, and generally he has preferred playing outdoors. I think he's only ever won one indoor hard court title in, in his career. That was all the way back in in Madrid, two thousand and five, I believe. Um, but then again, I think it was good for Nadal that it wasn't hot. And that feels like a weird thing to say because traditionally Nadal has has enjoyed the heat. But we saw how how much he faded physically due to the heat against Shapovalov. He actually did say in the Spanish portion of that press conference after the Shapovalov match that it was heat stroke that, that he was experiencing. And... So I felt like it was perhaps a benefit for him that he didn't have to contend with that, at least today. Um, And then when the match started, I obviously had David's words ringing in my ear. I was expecting a classic. I'd been been sold a classic, an epic. Matt's asking for a refund. Of all the people, David, it's Matt that's asking for a refund. I was feeling like a bit of a fraud, I have to say, at 6362. (laughs) Well... I was, you know, I was with you, David. I thought that Berrettini would trouble Nadal and sort of no end from the start. And actually what those first two sets revealed was that it was just way more of a match-up problem for him than I had realised. I mean, obviously we spoke about the backhand being such a weakness and such an area for Nadal to target. But 
it was pretty alarming for Berrettini how how much of a weakness it was, how easily Nadal was finding that backhand and just just the pattern of the match was just mm. all in Nadal's favour through those opening stages. I, I felt really sorry actually for, for Matteo Berrettini because it was like he'd, like he'd you know, been stripped naked out there. Um, you know, imagine sort of the one thing that you're, you know, your one weakness being prodded at, you know, by a bully. It's like, you know, it's like when you're sibling knows exactly the thing that you're most embarrassed about and that's the thing that they make fun of you for you know yes. um must have felt like that for Matteo Berrettini because everyone knows he knows and he knows that everybody else knows that the backhand is a massive relative weakness as much as it's improved and you know Nadal he is the master at exposing a weakness he's extraordinary at it and he was exposed out there for two sets yeah, and it reminded me of the conversations we've had about Berrettini in the past and buried a little bit, actually, because we've we've known he's got this weakness, but he has managed to sort of overcome it and do really well in slams recently, obviously Wimbledon final last year being the highlight. But we, you know, we have said before that the big four really have sort of brought in an era where you can't have a weakness you know Songa's backhand was always a bit of a weakness Burdick's movement Ferrer's lack of a weapon there was a reason why these guys didn't didn't break through in in the biggest matches against them and Berrettini sort of fits into that mold he's got he's got strengths but he has a weakness and I thought we did see yeah Nadal just exposed it today mm. and, and also Nadal his own tennis was unbelievable in those first couple of sets the the way he was hitting his forehand I thought his backhand as well it was almost like you know it was a bit of a troll because he was hitting his backhand so well to to (laughs) sort of set up points and just use it to get his forehand into play It, it was vintage Nadal for the first couple of sets he um he wasn't adhering to Carrillo's Carrillo's first law today was he Matteo Berrettini none of the laws no the laws are hold your serve hide your weakness and have a weapon. Now, on a good day, obviously, he, he can do all three of those. You know, we've got plenty of evidence now of Matteo Berrettini, but for two sets, didn't do any of those. And, and, and he fronted up to that impress, didn't he? Yeah, he did. I asked him about those first two sets because he said he expected more of himself. And I said, so, you know, what were you expecting? And he, and he just said, my attitude was bad. I was in the wrong mood, was the phrase he used to describe those two sets. He didn't say he was flat. He just said... My approach was wrong, really, and I thought that was a pretty honest assessment. Um, he's also got the problem that one of his ways of hiding the weakness is to use the slice. But that's an absolute no-no against Nadal because slices fit r- right into Nadal's topspin forehand. And that's just what I mean about it being even more of a match-up problem. Yeah, than if, I had if, if the backhand... if. If hitting being hit, if Nadal hitting your backhand is, you know, being made fun of by your sibling, then giving him the slice is, you know, like a wedgie. I've noticed uh, that Nadal's footwork is like the Roadrunner cartoon when anybody hits a slice to him. He sort of spots it immediately that the guy's opened the face Mm. of the racket. Oh, he's hitting a slice. Right. I don't care where this is going. I am not hitting it back with a backhand. (laughs) He can hit it right onto my backhand side. I'm going to get over there and hit a forehand winner. That's the end of it. He he takes it almost as a, a personal insult if somebody dares to hit a slice to him. And he's he's just going to make them pay, and that's what he did. 
I think right at the start of the match, and and then that that amps up the the premium on Berrettini striking through his own back end. And actually, as he got into the match in that third set, he started to just decide, I've just got to hit the thing. I've got to, I've got to go for it because it's the only way possible. And occasionally, he 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 nailed a few. You know, it's not it's not like a a shot he can't hit. He just can't hit it with any reliability. Uh, but there was, I mean, I, I think. You make quite an important point. I think it's so easy to focus on the game plan of Nadal was perfection, and he is brilliant at identifying a weakness and going for it. But I think that that slightly does down his own performance to focus too much on that. He he didn't just play his normal self today, which is all, always very good, pretty much. Today was exceptional. Today he would have beaten pretty much anybody i think for those first two sets that was just dominant tennis and he was just a better player than the guy um it it was for two sets it absolutely was everything you've just described but he did fade didn't he mm. he did fade it was his will and animalistic competitive instincts that got him over the line i think in that full set i think a lot of a lot of us were were anticipating a fifth, maybe. David, you sent us a text saying Berrettini's eyes are wide here. He sees opportunity. He sees a man on the ropes. And my goodness me, the the credit to Nadal for for breaking mm. the Berrettini serve and getting across the line. But how big an issue is that physical fade that that we've seen in Nadal for a, for a couple of matches now? It's an issue for sure. He's actually lost the third set in half of his matches here because he lost it to Hakshinov, he lost it to Shapovalov and he lost it again to Berrettini today. Definitely an issue. And it does seem like sort of fade is the best description. It's not like he's, he can't play, but he really has to manage his energy levels, I think. And there was this period in the match where... Berrettini won 23 points in a row on his serve from the sort of middle of the third set to when Nadal actually ended up breaking him decisively in the fourth set. And I think part of the reason was because once he wasn't winning the first couple of points in the service game, he was was sort of checking out of those games. Mm, He was economising, wasn't he? Yeah, he was conserving. There wasn't any need to get into those games. It was most important to protect his own serve at that that stage. And I was watching the match in the stadium with Simon Briggs and don't want to throw Simon under the bus here, but I'm going to. He, He thought Berrettini would win the match in the fourth set when there was such a physical difference between them. And I just said, yeah, Berrettini definitely has the physical edge, but I still back Nadal mentally. You know, I still back him to maybe finally get into a service game and, and pounce. And he sort, of, he sort of knows when to push Nadal. And in the end, I do think that is what happened. I thought Berrettini, when he lost his serve, his it was actually his forehand which let him down. You know, all the talk about the backhand, it was it was the forehand that made the errors. And that combined with Nadal's will and his sense of the moment, you know, it was it was just all all too much for him. He's peerless in that regard, in terms of will and sense of the moment. I think. Let's talk about his reaction after winning. Um, there was disbelief, there was pure joy, and then there was this real. Andy Murray-like outpouring of emotion, you know, extremely Andy Murray-like, actually. 
really made me, gave me chills and sent me back to Andy Murray, Washington, 2019, it would have been, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. Um, And Matt spoke to him about it in press. He was asked a lot about it in press and was extremely open about it. And it sounds like those tears came from an extremely similar place to Andy Murray's in Washington in 2019, Matt? Yeah, it was a question from... Ben Rothenberg actually about the tears at the end you know he said what was going through your mind then and and he said well conversations I've had with my team with my family in the last few months about retirement you know about the possibility of not being able to come back from this injury and yeah I, it's it is I don't want to say a miracle because it's, you know, it's a lot of hard work. He sort of stressed that as well. He said, I've worked really hard to get back here. But his his career was on a knife edge over, over the last few months. He really did not know whether he was going to be able to play again, certainly at the level that he's displaying this week. And, yeah, it just it just caught up with him. It just, you know, obviously we're going to talk a lot about 21. And that that is actually the thing that Nadal plays down the most, the sort of significance of 21. And I genuinely do believe him when he says that. What is most important for Nadal is he's back, he's competing. And and he used this this phrase on, on Eurosport, I think it was, David, to Mats Valander saying that he feels alive again. And that's what I asked him about. And he said, yeah, I feel alive because I can play tennis again. My tennis career has got life and I didn't, I didn't know that it would have. And that, for Nadal, is the most important thing about this tournament and what he's doing here. I think he's <clears throat> he's keen to be open about this element of it because I don't think he feels that we quite understand and believe him or appreciate how close he was to genuinely having to not play tennis anymore. I don't think he... And we can't know, can we? Because we weren't there. And what, what he was saying is those people that knew my diary every day that kept the same diary as me i.e my team those that were in my in my environments all the time they know they know how desperate it was is is what he's saying and we don't all we see is him coming out and making mincemeat out of Matteo Berrettini for two sets and that takes some doing because he's a good player and he's more than 10 years his junior and he's a, a strapping bloke you know and here's Nadal mid-30s somehow managed to get himself back out there and be competitive and actually not only competitive but reach the final. And I, I think Nadal's in Nadal's mind it kind of is a miracle. He he can't quite believe that this this has is happened given how close he was to not playing at all. And my mind also goes back to the conversations he and Federer had a few years ago when they talked about their time at the Rafael Nadal Academy, I think, when the you know one of them was on crutches and the other one we could couldn't play either and and suddenly they were both back in the in the final, you know, and I just don't think we do appreciate exactly what it is like to try to go through that level of rehab and go to the depths of despair almost of thinking it's over and trying to face up to that and then suddenly finding out that you've got another chance. I mean, Roger Federer must be there right now. You know, just imagine if Roger Federer manages to make some sort of comeback next year. I, I can't see it. But, I mean, I don't think we're, we're probably in that far a different situation with, with what Nadal has just experienced. 
So on Sunday, we will have Rafael Nadal going for Grand Slam number 21, which of course would pull him away from Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer. They're all on 20 at the moment. Federer had his go at getting to 21 at Wimbledon in 2019, of course, losing the final from match point up to Novak Djokovic. Djokovic had his bite at the cherry in the US Open final last year, lost out in three sets to Daniil Medvedev, and now Nadal gets his chance. It is so perfect. Matt (laughs) did did a smile about this today that up until now, has only been reserved for when the free ice cream comes around in the media room. (laughs) (laughs) I love the Grand Slam race. I thought you were going to say, I love the free ice cream in the media room. (laughs) Well, that goes without saying. (laughs) Yeah. The brand is Connoisseur. Honestly, he's like, oh, Connoisseur won. And he is one. His eyes light up. Anyway. but, But look, I mean, honestly... There has been, I think, some people in tennis, you know, perhaps even us on occasion, you know, where we've felt a little bit of big three fatigue, perhaps. And we've been, you know, we've been waiting for it. But, you know, it has been my tennis watching life, the Grand Slam race. And I am so invested in finding out how it finishes. And it keeps changing course and changing direction and... You know, obviously this tournament was was set on a very different path with everything that happened with Novak Djokovic and set the Grand Slam race on a different path. But I didn't, I didn't expect Nadal to potentially capitalise on that here because as everything David's just outlined of just how unlikely it is that he's even playing this event. And I, I do believe Nadal when he says his future happiness does not depend on breaking this record. I I really do think that is genuine and he has this perspective on it. And yet at the same time, when you watch him play, he is so ravenous and so hungry and being able to separate those two things, I find astonishing. And it's, it's such an incredible mindset and it might be, it might in the end be his greatest sort of power. It might be the thing which sort of, gets him to 21 first rather than the others. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm all in on, on the Grand Slam race and I'm excited that it's, that it's in play again on, uh, on Sunday. I've been working on an analogy which is not quite there yet and I fear I'm not going to get the help I need here because David, you're too old and Matt, you're too young. But anyway, I'll throw it out there and <laughs> see, see if you can work with this, David. Work on an analogy where Federer and Djokovic are Oasis and Blur and you know it was all about the 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 battle between them um hang on isn't this the 90s as this to who would be David's the greatest I mean, spot I, I am a bit offended but let's just get that in there right now that was right in my university years and and i know okay. more about blur and oasis than you okay. do is my guess but carry all right on. well bear with me then bear with me then well i just assumed if it's right in my sweet spot then then you're a bit older than me. Anyway, you were 11. Stop digging. But there we are. Federer, Federer and Djokovic were, uh, you know, Oasis and Blur. Mm-hmm. And everyone assumed that one of those two would go down as, you know, the great, the great. And then, and, and then did, Nadal yeah. is, pulp, is, is Pulp, is Pulp, who have just low key because of their longevity, low key uh, just quietly gone about becoming 
becoming uh, the ultimate. And Andy Murray might be like the verve or something. <laughs> I don't, I'm getting the impression, David, that you're not familiar enough with, with Pulp's material. I know exactly who Pulp is. I, I'm, I'm very no, much I mean, questioning whether Pulp... Material. Yeah, I'm, I am questioning that one as whether no, they're Pulp... any better. But, uh, better than Oasis. Don't think so. Well, there, there, there we go. Unqualified to comment. <laughs> so, uh, do do let us know what you think of my completely un, well, un, unfinessed theory. Well, I mean, the thing about Nadal is it's tough to see him as the third one, right? Because he was right there alongside Federer, really, at mm. the start. You know, so were Pulp, though, Matt. But, but what I find interesting is Nadal. Nadal was on Federer's case really early in Federer's career. I think people can forget that. And now he's on Djokovic's case. So this idea of um this idea of sort of longevity is true for Nadal, isn't it? You know, he he's he's had the most injuries, but he's still going. <laughs> he's still doing it. It's it is incredible. Mm. Okay, is anyone still talking to me? Shall I <laughs> shall I attempt to proceed with this podcast? Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Daniil Medvedev will also be going for actually what I think is... Low-key, quite a significant record himself on Sunday. No man has ever won the next slam after winning their first. In fact, only one man has ever even reached the final after winning their first Grand Slam. And that that was Andy Murray. Obviously, Daniil Medvedev has already matched that and can go one better. Women have done it, of course. Multiple women have, have done it. Most recently, Naomi Osaka's done it. But no man has ever done that. In the open era. In the, in the open era. 
Um, yeah, that's a that is actually a and that is a, a really heck of a big start. big deal. Yeah, that's that feels big to me. I have to say, especially because when I think of people like Pete Sampras when he won his first one, he was nineteen, and it took him took him a good two and a half years to win his next one. He kind of struggled with that weight on his shoulders, and 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 I think a lot of a lot of these players when they break through and win one early on, of course, Medvedev isn't that young. He is in the peak of his career, I think, right now. He's he's perfectly attuned but um yeah it's it's a really big achievement and uh and he i mean obviously we're going on to talk about the the, the match he's played and, and the nadal match but just strikes me how much he's loving being part of this big three situation in terms of his role as disruptor and determine determining potentially which way it ends up going yeah, and I think that's a really interesting aspect of this because, as you said, he is that much younger. He he referenced that, you know, when he was a child, he would hit against the wall and pretend that the wall was Federer or Nadal and now he's influencing the race right when it's at its sort of peak. And I think he is enjoying that. He, I mean, he said straight up, didn't he, I've... I'm going to enjoy the chance to deny someone else history, just as he did to Djokovic at the US Open. He's going to try and do it to Nadal as well. It suits his personality. It suits his sort of villain role in, in men's tennis, really. It, it enables him to say everything with a smirk, mm. which is really how he how he wants to be saying things. Um, we'll come on to his post-match press conference, trust me. But first, let's talk about the match. He beats it to pass 7-6, 4-6, 6-4, 6-1, obviously, to make his second straight Australian Open final. It was until the final set, which was unexpectedly one-sided, even to Medvedev, he said it in the press conference afterwards, he was very surprised um, at how easily he was able to win that fourth set. But until then, it was an extremely high-level match from both players. Sitsipas, I thought, mostly played really well. And yet, he didn't come that close tonight. He, there were moments where it felt close, but I think overall, stepping away, big picture, I don't think he actually it did get that close tonight. Medvedev had a gear that Sitsipas, Sitsipas didn't, didn't have. Sitsipas made no inroads whatsoever on the Med, Medvedev serve. And okay, Sitsipas served well tonight, and Medvedev wasn't, making great inroads on his serve either. It was quite a serve-dominated night. But the numbers for Tsitsipas on Medvedev's serve are terrible. Um, now, there is also discrepancy in these numbers, which makes tennis look pretty terrible because it is so tennis that two different, completely legit sources for these statistics say completely different things about these statistics. But... Um, one source says that Sitsipas won a total of 18 points on the Medvedev serve tonight out of 100. And another source says that he only won 14 out of 100. And just for context, last year in the straight sets defeat um, of Sitsipas by Medvedev, um, and bearing in mind after the match today, Sitsipas said, look, I played way better tonight than I did than I did last year when I was, you know, really out of gas after the Nadal match. And I'd agree with that. He did overall play better. He he did a lot better last year on on the Medvedev serve. He won 21 out of 82 points. Now, it's still not great, but it's better. So actually, in the really key area, which I think is the return, he just wasn't getting 
anywhere tonight sit to pass and that's a problem i think yeah it is i think especially in this day and age you know return is so important the best players in the world over the last few years have been the best returners and it is an area of weakness for sit to pass and yeah medvedev i felt like medvedev was the was the author of that match he was the one controlling it you know when when he needed to in that first set tie break, he was 4-1 down, but he raised his game. He found the shots when he needed to. He pocketed that first set, which was so important. Similarly, we'll come on, of course, I can't believe it's taken so long, we'll come on to aggro, outburst, drama, all of that. But Medvedev sort of self-destructed a bit at the end of the second set, start of the third set. He He was... He was, you know, the architect of his own downfall in a way in those moments. And then he he helped himself again by raising his level, not letting that outburst properly make him sort of tail spin out of control. And then in the fourth set, he just, he, he ran away with it. He had the physical edge and by that point, he, had, he, he just had sits pass right where he wanted him. So I felt like the same as you, Catherine, yes, Sitsipas played better tonight. Yes, he got a set. Yes, there were there were moments when it was close, but I felt like Medvedev had had levels he could go to that Sitsipas didn't, and largely that's because of the surface. You know, I think put this on a clay court, it's a different story. But hardcore at the moment, Medvedev has, has definitely got Sitsipas's number. Yes, let's talk about the aggro shall we? Let's just get straight to the heart of the matter because end of the second set, things are extremely close. Well, the, 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 two, the two opening sets were extremely close. Sitsipas was 4-1 up in the opening set. Tiebreak Medvedev then surged back, hit a couple of just absolutely stunning and improbable shots. One forehand passing shot that he squeezed into a space which you didn't know existed before he hit it. And I think another... Um, trademark backhand drilled down the line. Both of them just amazing. Um, but so end of the second set, Medvedev gets broken. He loses the set. He's unhappy. <laughs> um, and as he's walking back to the chair, he does a gesture which he explained in press afterwards is just sort of flapping his arms around to the crowd. He wasn't happy with, you know, the crowd calling out between second and first serves. It was an extremely pro sit to pass crowd tonight. So he said he was just generally, you know, flailing his arms about. And um, the umpire, um, Jaume Campistol, uh, gave him a visual obscenity warning for that, which is, is a new one on me, I think. Well, I've, I've seen that one a couple of times. So I'm thinking back to the, the finger that Medvedev put to the side of his face during the US Open. Did he get um, a visual... Obs- I don't think he got a visual obscenity for that, though. I think he probably did I, post-match. I've, I've, I've seen visual obscenities, David. <laughs> Trust me. Uh, no, I just I don't, don't think just, I've seen seen them given... Jimmy the Connors moment. used to get them all the time as well. <laughs> back in the day. <laughs> um. See, this is why I thought you'd be too old to know about <laughs> blurring oasis. Anyway, I take it all back. Why have I brought it up again? Um, so he gets the visual obscenity warning uh, and then he sits down at the chair and he channels some frustration towards the umpire. And it's 
mostly quite fun and pantomime it's a it's it's over it's over the line i think because it's so personally directed towards the umpire that's always what makes me a bit uncomfortable and he's specifically saying why why aren't you giving sit to pass a warning for coaching when his when his dad's talking all the time and he says he's saying he's saying look at me yeah, and he saying, said, why are you so bad in a, in a Grand so Slam bad? semi-final? And yeah, it was, yeah, it, it the personal nature of it towards the umpire was not, it was not our ideal form of aggro. Um, yeah, um, but there was a highly amusing moment uh, where he, he goes off court to change his kit and he again says, uh, you know, you need to be looking at, at Sitsabas's dad and giving giving him a warning. And if you if you don't do that, you're a a little cat or a small cat, was it? Small cat. Small cat. And there was a lot of rewinding the footage. Um, obviously, we couldn't do that because we were in the stadium, but we were relying on David and various other people on Twitter to clarify that he really did, in fact, say small cat. Mm. Um, and obviously. On reflection, it is now clear that he was very um, cannily saying small cat in order not to get an audible obscenity warning for what he maybe possibly might have meant, David. Yeah, and and possibly as well verbal abuse, which is probably a more serious code violation because, you know, he was calling the umpire directly a name basically which is it's not on really i mean that that was funny i did find that funny when he was when he was shouting at the umpire i, I had my kids in the room and they just sort of stopped what they were doing you know they're kind of half watched sometimes playing with games and all the rest of it and then suddenly they stopped and they, and you could see they were quite scared they were quite scared of him they were quite rattled rattled by how angry he looked but i mean he was red in the face he had lost it a bit there had medvedev he was shouting at the top of his voice Okay, the the umpire had got his back to him, and that was almost part of the problem because he felt he wasn't listening to him, and he was just saying, ah, "Listen to me, listen to me, answer the question," you know. And he, he he was getting more and more irate, and and I did think we're right on the edge here. Not, I do think this is pushing over the line, but we're right on the edge of of this going out, getting really out of hand, and me almost turning it off, you know, because because I don't there's certain things I don't really want them to have to see, um, but. Um, it's quite interesting. I mean, there are a couple of things. One is I actually thought in the first three sets, I think the higher notes of the match came overall from Sitsipas. I think he to me it was like watching Roger Federer against Novak Djokovic. It felt like one of their matches where there's this guy who's trying to create and then there's this guy who's just trying to who's basically snuffing out all of that creation and and blunting it. Um and one of the best matches I've seen Sitsipas play for three sets against Medvedev, probably the best overall. And he was coming up with answers, he was taking it to him. But what that rant did was helped Medvedev get it, get his frustration out of his system and reset. Because when he came out again, he was calm. And he just he was getting the chances in that third set. He was staying with him. Okay, it took him a while to break. And then in the fourth set, he was incredible i thought medvedev's form in that fourth set was like nadal in the first two sets tonight and uh and i actually think that that's the 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 biggest thing for the final i think nadal's got to win it quickly i don't see him out i don't see him doing to medvedev what he did in 2019 put it that way 
No, same. Just on the the aggro, he 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 apologised to the umpire at at the handshake, which obviously isn't isn't a handshake in COVID times. He was he was seen saying, "I'm I'm sorry, I'm I'm really really sorry," and then he he doubled down on that in press afterwards. Um, he was he was asked whether whether he ever regrets. I think it was Ben Rothenberg again that asked him whether you you know. You regret these out- outbursts you have in the heat of the moment. He said all the time, all the time. I always regret them, and he said he regretted that one tonight. You know, he said he to battle all of that, but yeah, it's. Um, I think you know he he understands it, and he's not sort of saying it's never going to happen again. <laughs> he's not making those kind of promises. John McEnroe um, used to be like that, didn't he, Catherine? I mean, we, we got to know him in on the Champions Tour, and he would. He wouldn't always. He would. The difference was he wouldn't apologise a lot of the time, but he, he would wouldn't regret say it. it. But you could you could see that he he did yeah. regret. He wouldn't say it the way Medvedev did tonight. I no, don't think. I'm, I'm glad I, Medvedev I never saw that. It's 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 good that Medvedev owns it quickly these days. At least he didn't used to. Mm. Yeah, it was good. I mean, he was. You know, he's just. I mean, it wasn't even a particularly great Daniil Medvedev press conference tonight, was it? But it was just sort of, it was just great, as they all are. Yeah, again, I I said to Simon as we were sort of shuffling out of the room, world number one in, in press conferences, Daniil Medvedev. And, you know, he he agreed, I think, Simon. You know, Simon mentioned how good Federer has, 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 has always been in press conferences. But, yeah, you... They they must not miss his press conferences because he's he's going to open he's going to be honest he's going to reflect he's going to have interesting things to say he's going to be really polite when he says it as well it's you know he he's very very good in the press room in the same way he's very very good on court as well he he, he really is sort of covering everything um, just just on that on that point you made David about it being similar or reminding you of of Federer Djokovic I I sort of had the same thoughts and look who wins the Federer Djokovic matches on a hard court in the slams always Djokovic and it can always it can very often feel like Federer is the better player because as you said he's uh, or Sitsipas in this in this case because he's hitting these incredible highs and doing these incredible things but in the crunch moments I think Medvedev's game style suits it more. He, he you know, he, he just he can go into a sort of lockdown mode. Whereas Medvedev doesn't have to take the risks. Doesn't have to he? take the risks which Sitsipas has to take and which Federer has to take. And yeah, it's just a game style which I think lends itself more to high pressure moments. And then when you combine that with the incredible mental strength that Djokovic and Medvedev both have, it's so tough to beat, even for players with the skills of of Federer and Sitsipas. Great watch, though, those first three sets, I thought. One last mm. bit of um, very minor aggro to touch upon um, is that Stefano Tsitsipas was eventually given a coaching <laughs> warning in the third set. Um, and this came about, it transpires, as a result of Ava Azdaraki Moore, the, the Greek umpire, being assigned to stand underneath the Stefanos Tsitsipas players box and listen out for coaching instruction being yelled by Apostolos Tsitsipas, which 
is common. Sitsapas has been given warnings about it in at least two of his matches this fortnight. I think think a lot a lot more than that. I mean, Sitsapas said himself, you know, it happens all the time. He barely even notices now. But you you had Avrasnaraki Moore sort of loitering in the tunnel like a covert agent, <laughs> doing hand signals to um, to the chair umpire to indicate he's done it. Give him a warning. Um, and the warning came and, uh, yeah, it was a very quirky little moment. And if you want to hear, uh, the very interesting things that Stefanos Tsitsipas had to say about the fact that he is repeatedly getting these coaching warnings, uh, then subscribe to the newsletter because Matt asked him about it in press afterwards. In fact, Matt got congratulated by the other journalists in the room for asking the question that... (laughs) That they all wanted to hear the answer to, but Good but hadn't asked. And and sit to be fair to sit to pass best press conference of the fortnight today after his win. He was yeah, he was he wasn't chippy, he wasn't um as weird. Um he wasn't <laughs> as um he was more natural, I think. Mm. He was just a bit more sort of off the cuff. And um saying things as he saw them, I think. And, you know, I didn't agree with a lot of the ways that he saw things. There were a few sort of logic failures in there. He sort of said, he argued with the why he was getting coaching warnings because he said, look, it doesn't matter what my dad's shouting, I don't hear it. He said, I'm so in my own world, I'm never going to hear anything my dad's saying. You know, failing to understand that that doesn't matter. If your coach mm. is doing it, that's what you get the get the warning for. And then he sort of went on to the subject of um you know whether whether uh, coaching should be warning worthy anyway but i i'm i am encroaching onto newsletter territory so i encourage you to subscribe to the newsletter um and check out that excellent content in there so that is your final your men's final Rafael Nadal against Daniil Medvedev, both men going for history. Medvedev once again trying to stop a member of the big three going for history. It's, it is absolutely delicious. Do you think Netflix want a uh, third, fourth place playoff between their two guys, <laughs> Sitsipas and Berrettini, both followed by the cameras but won't be featuring in the final? <laughs> Netflix want a rewrite, I think. Um, Mind you, they've got enough material from this. Uh, yeah, so they've Australian got off to a decent think, start, haven't they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I bet they want to be filming Medvedev, though. Mm. Anyway, anyway. Um, right then, so that is Sunday night. What about tomorrow night? We have Ash Barty against Danielle Collins. We also have the special case, but I'm not going to make anyone do predictions there. We have Ash Barty against Danielle Collins for the women's singles title. What's going to happen? Who's going to win it? Uh, I think Barty will win it. I I think she will. I think it will be close. Two tight sets is what I would expect. But I think Barty will just come up with the answers. I, I think Barty right now is like Federer 2004. She is just at the height of her powers. And I'm not too sure at the moment. I mean, I think maybe Osaka a year ago, you know, we've seen Andrescu at an incredible level. But I think Barty is just so far and above the most talented player in the world. 
And um, I think Collins will give a really good account of herself, but I think it will be a bit like Federer Roddick or something like that, you know, where you've got this player who's hitting the ball really well and against anybody else in the world, they'd win. But Barty, I think he's just too good. I think I agree. I think it feels like a question of whether Barty's just pure level, as David is saying, is is going to be too much for Collins because I think Collins will try and make it the match she wants. She will try and intensify the occasion, whereas I think Barty will be trying to sort of dampen it and quash it. And ultimately, I think Barty will be able to do that just just by how good she is, just by her game causing Collins problems. And if if all else fails for her, I think I think she can fall back on that serve. You know, I I, I know I bang on about it, but Ash Barty's serve is so good. And I think even if she's having a bit of a bit of a tight day, I think I think that'll help her stay in the match. So I'm going Barty as well. I'm going for Barty. Uh but I think I would go for Barty in three. I think there's going to be a wobble in there. I do. And I, th- and I think Daniel Collins will be right there to pounce on any wobble. Um, yeah, I think Barty in three. Uh, ultimately, I think the tennis, as you've both said, will be the decisive factor. The tennis is just that much better that it can withstand a wobble. Um, but I, I would be surprised if there wasn't a wobble. And the wobble will make it fun, folks, I think. Oh, I mean, the whole occasion is going to be extraordinary. You know, Ash, Ash Barty, first Australian woman in an Australian Open final since, what is it, 1980? That's such a big deal. And, you know, that's that aspect I'm looking forward to sort of as much as anything, really, just trying to get a sense of the atmosphere and soaking it up. And it, it, it's a special day mm. tomorrow. And Daniil Medvedev will be watching on his phone uh, during <laughs> dinner, as he told Jim Courier in his uh, on-court post-match interview, which was uh, an am- a, <laughs> amazing moment. A last-minute save, wasn't it, really? <laughs> yes, sort of, yes. Uh, so uh, what else is there tomorrow? There is the special Ks, folks. Uh, the night session from 7.30 is Barty against Collins, followed by Kokinakis and Kyrgios against Matt Ebden and Max Purcell. Before that, you've got your junior finals. Um, we'll let you know who your um, your ones to watch for the future are. The girls' final is Petra Marchinko of Croatia. She's the top seed. She is Croatian and she is taking on Sofia Kostulas uh, of Romania. She's the eighth seed and the Boys final is the American Bruno Kuzuhara, which uh, is just a brilliant name, against uh, Jacob Mensik. And Kuzuhara is the top seed, I think, in that Mensik, the fourth seed. So both top seeds through to the junior finals. That's tomorrow. Just one last thing from today, and that is the mixed doubles title, which has gone to Ivan Dodig and Christina Medenovic. They beat Jamie Furless. And Jason Kubler, 6-3-6-4. And considering Kristina Mladenovic was the first person out of the tournament in singles on day one, that's um, a nice ending for her to the fortnight. And uh, in their speech, they said they've been, you know, 
trying to play together for more than five years or something, I think. So they've finally got it together and they've won the title. So disappointment for the Aussies, but still a, a fairy tale fortnight for them. So that's it. Your day 12 <laughs> tennis podcast. There's only two more to go. My God. Um, we'll of course be back tomorrow with our penultimate tennis podcast, reviewing whatever happens in the women's final and looking ahead to the men's final. We will have Carter, and Darwin and Gerald the Cat is our mascots. I scored today, Carter. Scored scored big with Rafael Nadal in four. Um, <laughs> Billy Jean will be back with Billie Jean King and Alana Kloss as her mascot. We'll have Charlie, our lovely Australian Open mascot, Charlie the Beagle. Uh, keep sending content, Charlie. We'd love some uh, Charlie stuff to post on our Instagram over the weekend. Uh, we have got Chris Albert Lee and Kyle Weingartner, our executive producers and top blokes. And we've got shout outs. Yes, I enter this with uh, a bit of trepidation tonight after uh, after yesterday. Um... No penis gags. <laughs> <laughs> My rule for myself. No accidental <laughs> penis gags. <laughs> right, we have Alec Mills from Bristol. I think we're safe. <laughs> right, Alec. A, a little bit like Alan Mills. Mm. The former Indeed. Wimbledon referee. Do you remember when he mm. was the judge on our uh, end of season awards one? Oh, year, I Catherine? do. That was great, I do. wasn't it? Vividly, yeah. That was recorded at the Royal at Albert the Royal Hall, Albert Hall, Hall yeah. Yeah. Um, my my granddad was called Alec by some people. Alex, Alec. Thank you so much for supporting us and being our friend, Alec. Yes, thank you, Alec. We also have Dennis Curley from Minneapolis. Who oh, I says, thought you were going to say Dennis Cuddler then. <laughs> Dennis says... Thanks to David's 2021 shout-out of my name, in which he referred to curly-whirly bars, my sister-in-law, Julianne, had some sent to me via Amazon. They were delicious. <laughs> We've changed Marvelous. his life. Oh, that so has proud. saved me from doing a really tenuous penis gag. Thanks, Matt. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Thank you, Dennis. And we also have Natalie Hawin from Sydney, who is appropriately a huge Rafael Nadal fan. And Nadal was her topic on Mastermind. <gasps> oh, blimey. Hang on. Hang on. Is this a joke? You, are you having a, I'm having a very vague memory of, of seeing an episode of Mastermind, or certainly being texted by a friend to say stick mastermind on nadal was a topic i mean is is oh, there an australian version of mastermind hang on is she saying she's appeared on mastermind and that was her topic or she's saying that would be her topic no she's appeared on it and she said she, she was narrowly defeated by not studying the list of awards he's won in spain from his atp profile wow uh, natalie please um send us more info on that mm. what country uh the the what what nation's mastermind it was. I don't know if it goes out anywhere but the UK. Um, is is it available on YouTube? Just just more info, please, Natalie. Get in touch. How cool, though. Yeah, yeah that's amazing. Yeah, that's serious tennis fan credentials. Uh, so thank you uh, 
to everyone in our shout-outs list today. Dennis, Alec and Natalie, thank you to all of our friends. If you want to become a friend, uh, then the link to do so is in our show notes. Definitely subscribe to the newsletter if you haven't already. Tell your friends, um, leave us an iTunes review, do all of that stuff and definitely join us tomorrow for our penultimate Australian Open daily tennis podcast. We'll speak to you then. 